All right, good morning, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get cranking, 10 o'clock sharp. That's okay, I've got it up. I had a little time to pull that up this morning. All right, so number seven on our statement of faith. If you have one, you can take it out and look at it. It's on our website as well. And I'm going to go ahead and start because we've got a lot of ground to cover. I certainly don't plan on exhausting this this morning. I feel like the subject matter is worth probably a couple weeks. Um, so I'd like, to, I'd like to go over that. Yeah. All right. So point seven, the consequences of sin, both inherited and actual, are separation from God and spiritual death, complete disinheritance as children of God, subjection to all the miseries of this life, physical death, and eternal conscious punishment of both soul and body and the lake of fire in the age to come. Um, I'm choosing to focus on the last part because I feel like as we touched on Romans 5 and we touched on a lot of the other passages last week regarding death, I feel like, you know, I mean, I'm happy to come back to the two intermediate phrases there about subjection all to the miseries of this life and we can look more at physical death. Um, I think we're all convinced of that. I think it would be good, though, to spend most of our time looking at this last phrase. And one of the main reasons is because this, this last idea here of eternal conscious punishment is something that has undergone a lot of scrutiny over the last, uh, say, 75 years or so. Um, I mean, I guess there's a sense in which it's always been a dispute in certain uh, portions of the church, relatively small, but... Lately, I think it's become more um, front and center. And so we want to look at what the scriptures say regarding this doctrine of eternal conscious punishment um, and, uh, and see if indeed it is biblical. And like everything else, we all want to make sure that we do not impose on the Bible um, foreign ideas. We want to make sure that we extract from the Bible ideas the Bible gives us. Um, so that... I hope to do this morning again as I've tried to do with all the other things up to this point. So let me pray and then we'll get into this extremely important topic. Father, we come to you this morning and Lord, just so thankful that we are those who've washed our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. We're so thankful that we will finally be in that new garden, that new heavens and new earth where we will have full and free access to you, full security and safety um, in an unending conscious existence with you, our Father, seeing you face to face, dwelling with you, dwelling with one another. Uh, Lord, what an amazing prospect, seeing the glory of God. So we just thank you for that. And Lord, we, we thank you also that you've given us the truth regarding the state and the destiny of the wicked. Lord, you've given us both. And you've told us in, in terms that really ultimately should make our skin crawl. Um, 
Lord, there are all manner of um, uh, dissenters and those who oppose the teaching of Scripture, the language of Scripture. Many in the world today see any notion of final judgment in hell as archaic and just flat out wrong and evil. Um, but Lord, you tell us in, in so clear of terms that the judgment, the just punishment, the revelation of the righteousness and the righteous judgment of God is the lot and the portion of all the wicked who do not obey the gospel. And so, Lord, help us to know that this is what you say. This is not what we would concoct. Certainly, as human beings, we would not. We are so quick to minimize our sin, to justify our sin, to hide from our sin. Um, but, Lord, you tell us front and center um, how awful sin really is, what it actually does in your universe and what it does to you, and how you will one day decisively deal with it. And so, Lord, again, I just pray that we would all approach this topic with humility um, and really genuinely with tears. Um, you do not you do not delight in the death of the wicked. Lord, you don't judge because you want to. You judge because you have to. Um, it is something that is good. And Lord, please ever keep us from imposing our ideas of justice on you. Lord, you create justice in your own image. And so, Lord, I pray that you would again give us insight and clarity in these things for your glory, for our good, and for the urgency of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, <clears throat> I've been looking into this for um, hours, arguably hours, <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I mean, when you're focusing here on the consequences of sin, it's hard to not just be riveted. And as we look at this issue this morning of eternal conscious punishment, even more so. Um, this is a weighty, weighty topic. So what do we mean by eternal conscious punishment? We believe that the Bible teaches that the wicked will suffer eternal conscious torment or punishment for their sins. This means that the wicked who do not know God are consigned to a place and in that place undergo God's just punishment, suffering consciously forever and forever, never able to, to escape in a state of death. That's what I think the Bible clearly teaches. Now there are a couple of views here that, in my view, oppose this view. One is universalism, and one is annihilationism or conditionalism. Um, universalism, I think most of you are probably aware, universalism basically teaches, and this is very basic, this is sort of bottom line, there's, there's differing opinions within universalism, but the bottom line is all people will ultimately be saved. Hell will be empty, and heaven will be full of those formerly in hell. I'm not really going to interact much with universalism because it's just so patently obvious that that's not taught in Scripture. Um, the second view, though, is annihilationism or conditionalism, or uh, you might have heard it called conditional immortality, that state that only the righteous have immortality and the wicked do not. Therefore, the wicked will not exist forever. 
Consequently, God will punish the wicked with capital punishment, body and soul, perhaps after an indefinite time of suffering. There's variations of opinions about that. Could be minutes, could be hours, could be years. But regardless, one day hell will be empty also. And, as some view it, hell also will cease to exist. Um, Many like um, modern day proponents like Chris Date would only allow a few hours, for instance, from what I've heard of him in terms of suffering. Um, And then guys like Edward Fudge, they would sort of plead ignorance in terms of what's going on in this time period before their final destruction and do not want to give any time frame of potential suffering. He kind of pleads ignorant to it. At least that's what I heard him say. Um, I will not be interacting with universalism, but I will be interacting specifically with conditional immortality and annihilationism. Before I I get into the actual text, because I feel like that's going to be the best way to go about it, I'm not Steve in terms of being able to categorize things that well. Um, He's really good at that. I just feel far more at home by just working through passages of Scripture and seeing the cumulative data build, and then you can, I think, see clearly that this teaching um, is found in Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. But before I do that, I thought it might be good to set the stage. I'm going to mention the language that the New Testament in specific gives with regard to the destiny of the wicked. And here's the language. The wrath of God, tribulation, distress, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, outer darkness, black darkness, Hades, place of torment, agony, weeping, gnashing of teeth, lake of fire, furnace of fire, pay or suffer the penalty, eternal destruction, destruction, judgment, fiery hell, eternal fire, away from the face or away from the presence of the Lord or away from before the Lord, perish, death, second death, hell, eternal punishment. These are the phrases given in the New Testament alone. And this does not exhaust the language. It does not exhaust the language in the New Testament. The sheer volume of instances and terminology reveal that this is a core teaching of the Scriptures, and in specific the New Testament, and one that we must understand and hold to if we are going to be faithful to God's Word and rightly see who God is and who man is. So my plan, at least this morning, is to work through the Gospels, and then after that, and I'm not going to even get done with the Gospels, um, after that, a a few places in the Epistles, um, again, specifically places that might speak to the, the conditional immortality view, and then also the Revelation of John. Um, And every now and then as I go through the Gospels and the Epistles of Revelation, you'll hear me jump back and forth and ahead to other texts that might elucidate other texts, but that's the way we're going to go. So we're going to start in Mark 9, Mark 9, 42 through 48. So Mark 9, 42 through 48. I'm going to try to go to 10, 45, and then I'll stop for five minutes for questions. And then I want to try to get out of here by 10.50 if we can. 
Um, so 9:42 through 48. Here's Jesus' words regarding stumbling blocks. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe, talking about Christians, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 46, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So let's think about this text. I mean, clearly, Jesus is speaking about the heinousness of sin. Those who cause, those, those who cause believers to sin will be punished, and you personally take sin seriously because if you don't, you will be punished. This is how offensive sin is to God. So the one who causes someone to sin will be, stum- will, will be punished. And you personally, if you don't take sin seriously, you will be punished. That's sort of the overarching point. In verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it'd be better for him if a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had, he had been cast in the sea. In verse 42, Jesus' main point is that violent death is better than what awaits those who cause others to sin. It is better, Jesus says. Jesus uses this language of it is better several times in the Gospels with regard to final judgment. So at this point, we have to come to terms with the fact that violent death, violent cessation of physical life, life ended, however you want to put it, is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Jesus says that situation is better for the wicked. I mean, can you imagine? Okay? We, we don't want to gloss over this very quickly. Jesus is ill. He, he could have just said it's better for you if you died. Right? Physically died. He doesn't. He gives a very vivid, vivid violent picture here. Millstone tied around your neck you picked up, thrown into the sea to drown. I mean, you just, if you saw that, you'd probably, you'd, you'd, I mean, it, it would affect you the rest of your life. And Jesus is saying that that situation is better for the wicked. That's, that's quite a statement. Now, there is actually, as we're thinking about this whole idea of it being better for an individual and to, to suffer certain things rather than what they will finally face. Jesus says that also in Matthew 26, 24, with regard to Judas. So you know Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 26, 24. 
The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, talking about to his death, and be betrayed. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if it had not been born. He doesn't just say it would have been good if he had not been born in some abstract way. It would have been good for that man. For Judas, it would be a lot better if he had not been born. This is what he says about Judas. Think of it. Jesus says it'd be, it would be, he doesn't even just say it'd be better. He says it would be good if that man had never been born. That is, it would be good for Judas if he had never existed and had, yeah, just no existence, non-being, whatever you want to say. Now, to the universalist, they would have to change Jesus' words to say, it is better for Judas that he was born. Right? Why? Because he will one day be in glory. But what about the annihilationist or the conditionalist? They would have to change it as well. It would be the same if he had never been born, based on the way they view the final destiny of the wicked. And in my view, this twists the scripture. To me, almost right at the outset, as you just think about this reality of these two comparative texts reflecting on the destiny of the wicked, it in some ways almost all already settles it. I know there's a lot more that can be said. I know that conditionalists have answers to that. Universalists probably do too. But it just seems, it just seems clear. Jesus says violent death and non-existence are both better and even good than what awaits the wicked. Implying that they both are in some kind of misery in continued conscious existence. There is a debate, again, this is important, I think. There is a debate among those um, who debate eternal conscious torment and conditional mortality about what is worse, annihilation or eternal conscious torment. Is it worse to be punished in a capital sense, uh, definitive demise, or is it worse to be tormented eternally and consciously? Um, there is that debate. People typically in the bait, I would say particularly conditionalists, say one can't really know it becomes subjective. But I would say these two texts together, it seems Jesus has given his answer on that question. What is better, Jesus? It would be better if they didn't exist. And I, again, I'm not sure what other conclusions to draw from these texts. Um, continuing ongoing punishment is worse than extinction and worse than mere physical violent death. And that is, in effect, what awaits the wicked. And I think the rest of the Gospels tease this out. All right, so verse 43, Jesus goes on to say, moving away from the person who causes others to stumble, and his destiny, he says, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Then he says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. 
So he's saying hand, feet, eyes. All better to amputate. And in Matthew, it actually says, gouge out your eye. The picture's kind of gross. <laughs> but Jesus says, again, that it's better to inflict personal amputation on yourself than for your whole body to go to hell. That's what he says. Why? Why is it better? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, first, it means that you've taken sin seriously and you'll go to glory. That's the number one reason, right? But there's also other reasons. Because it's both hands and both feet and both eyes thrown into L. That is, your whole body will suffer in this worse state. Why is it worse for the whole body to be in hell versus an amputated body? It's because the affliction the whole body experiences. Again, the affliction the whole body experiences, I think, is the main deterrent here. Um, but of course, this doesn't necessarily prove that it's eternal, but it, it is the deterrent here. Your whole body thrown into hell is worse than whatever you want to say, just um, aggressive amputation, however Jesus puts it. So that's one reason for your whole body to be in hell. Number two, because it is unending. I think these other two images, while the first one doesn't necessarily point to the fact that it's eternal necessarily, these two other images, I think, do. I think that the other reason why it is worse is because the pain inflicted, the place you are located, is unending. And it's signified by the two images, or the instruments of the destruction, in hell. Namely, that the worm doesn't die, and the fire is not quenched. And, and you probably have in brackets, where there's some manuscript um, variation there. Verse 48, there is no manuscript variation. Um, so he says, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These images are connected to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 66. I think Jesus is thinking of Isaiah 66. And they help us discern what is exactly meant by the worm and the fire. So I'm going to turn back to Isaiah 66. You can turn back there too. Isaiah 60 through 66, glorious passages of Scripture. Let's read the, the, the verses 20 through 24. Again, I think this is Isaiah's vision, prophetic vision of the future. Verse 22. For just as the new heavens and new earth, or sorry, for just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to me, will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Okay. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So Isaiah 66 is following this blessed prophecy of God creating a new heavens and new earth. And with that new creation, Jerusalem, Zion, interchangeable, will be a blessing and a place 
of blessing. A place full of joy, a place populated by the nations, and so on. You can read that in chapter 66. But in this glorious state of a new heavens, new new earth, not all awareness of evil is gone. As Isaiah 66 closes, there are images of corpses. Dead people strewn about, as it were. And this is a horrific image. And yet an image that conveys clearly that God has conquered his foes. And there's an interesting couple of verses that tell us about these dead corpses and signify that they do not just simply decompose or go away. Isaiah adds statements on here about their unending nature. That is, apparently, their bodies remain. Keep in mind, they have been decisively beaten and slaughtered, and yet they remain. They are visible. And Isaiah says, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. So what can we say further about this? Regarding the worm, Isaiah clearly says, their worm will not die. That's what he says. Jesus says the same thing. Their worm will not die. What can we conclude? Why would it not die? What does not die mean? (laughs) It does not die. Because the bodies that serve for the food of the worm are never finally gone. Somehow, they are able to remain. Again, it's grotesque. Normally, maggots die because there's no fuel or flesh left to eat. But here, these do not die. What is the logical deduction? They don't die because their fuel source still exists. Now, the conditionalists will say that all Isaiah and Jesus mean here is that the worm consumes until the bodies are all gone. Basically, they're completely destroyed. But again, that's not what the text says. The language goes against the typical way maggots and corpses operate. That's the main thrust of it. Here, the bodies are never gone. Their worm does not die. Their worm. Don't miss that pronoun. Their worm. Each corpse corpse has its own set of worms. Each corpse. Each corpse's worm will not die. Why? Because each corpse will not cease to exist. We are talking in imagery here to convey death and destruction that is unending. Regarding the fire not being quenched, some think its primary meaning is that it will not be able to go out. But again, that's not what Jesus or Isaiah says. He does not say that it's not able to be quenched, although that is true. He said it is not quenched. That is, it does not go out. A similar passage is in Isaiah 34, 9-10, reflecting on the same language. It says this, Its land, talking about the land of Edom that was destroyed, Its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. Here the emphasis is on the foreverness of the fire. It burns night and day forever. 
therefore the fire will not go out. So when thinking of this imagery, Isaiah and Jesus want to communicate that in this state of death, the wicked remain being burned forever. Now Edward Fudge, commenting on Isaiah and Jesus here, will say that the worm and fire will, quote, continue to destroy until nothing remains, end quote. Here's what he says. Quote, the devouring worm is aided by unquenchable fire that cannot be put out, and that therefore continues to destroy until nothing remains. And when that destruction is completed, it will last for all eternity. End quote. So, according to Fudge, this is just sort of business as usual for these worms and fire. The worms will continue to eat, the fire will continue to consume until all is consumed. And then this non-existent ashy result will remain for all eternity. I think that's what he means by that will remain for all eternity or something like that. Brethren, this is hardly what the text points to. Um, it just doesn't. A fire, one man commenting on this said this, and I thought it captured it really well. A fire that continues to destroy until nothing remains, as Fudge claims, is not unquenchable. It is rather quenched. If, quote-unquote, nothing remains, as Fudge claims, the fire must go out. Fudge makes the exact opposite point of Jesus in Isaiah. Their fire never goes out. Fudge's goes completely out. It either goes out or it doesn't. We must make a choice. Furthermore, destruction cannot be both, quote, completed, as Fudge says, and therefore over with at the same time, and at the same time last for all eternity. Let me read that again. Destruction cannot be both completed and therefore over with and at the same time last for all eternity. Of course, Fudge is free to venture the speculation that Jesus or Isaiah was referring to the consequences or the results of the destruction, but that is not what either text says. Rather, both refer to the destroying and ongoing ravages of maggot and flame. Again, the grotesqueness of the image and the sternness of the warning from Jesus are dependent precisely on the macabre spectacle of the such horrors ongoing. So I think that pretty much sums it up. I think that text could not be clearer. Let me also say this, and um, I don't have this in my notes here, but I'm going to get to it when we come to Revelation 14 as well with regard to the smoke lasts forever, um, because they will look back at Isaiah 34 and say, see, Isaiah 34 talks about smoke lasting forever on the destruction of a historic nation called Edom. But I want to argue, and I think it's pretty clear, that Isaiah 34, 35, 65, and 66 are all prophecies of future glory and judgment. I think if you go to these texts and you read them, not only is Edom destroyed, but also the nations. Isaiah 66, it's all about the eternal state. So I think the language in both texts actually undergird and is the reason why Jesus uses them and John uses them. And we'll look at that even more in, uh, in, 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 in the following weeks, especially when we get to Revelation. Now, back to Mark 9. <clears throat> Yeah. Can you speak to uh, 
Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the torment is not explicitly stated there. Yeah, I agree with that. The reality is they are there forever in some capacity in a state of death. And so, yeah, and I think that you do have this, this idea of these people have been slaughtered. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think if you're thrown into hell by God, I think you, it is a state of some, of violent casting in that affects you body and soul. I mean, I think there is something going on there. We're going to look at that actually a little bit more. Now back to Mark 9. Look at verse 43, 45, and 47. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame. Um, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom. Um than to be cast into hell. One of the things I want to point out here is that hell is a place. Um, it is a place over and over, and you can do your own Strong's Concordance research, whatever you want to do, over and over, hell is said to be a place. These people go somewhere. They are relocated into a place. And it is a place where clearly the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Um, and um, I, I'm, I'm tempted here. Well, anyway, it's important to understand that Jesus has a notion that somewhere in God's universe after the day of judgment, there will be a place to put the wicked. Okay, I think that's, that's what he's saying. Let's look at some other texts here that say the same thing about hell and make some observations about it. And I want you to just feel this weight that hell is this place that people, the wicked, are cast into. All right, Matthew 5.22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So just some observations. Hell is a place. It is somewhere you go into. Hell, fire, or here fire, is the adjective tied to hell. Fiery hell is the language. So, it is a place of fire. Obviously, Jesus is warning, and here it's to the disciples, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is warning his disciples about this place was clear enough. They don't want to go to a place and burn in fire. I mean, that's what it means. Matthew 5.29 If your right eye, another text with regard to amputation, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, there it is, and throw it from you. I mean, just think of that. Just get 
you know, just, it means I'm going to go to hell if I don't do this. That's the idea. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. Why? Because it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here, Jesus employs graphic imagery. Get rid of that hand, get rid of that eye that causes stumbling as quick as you can. Why? Because violent amputation is better than the whole body to go into hell. So the whole of a person who does not take sin seriously will be consigned to a place with their whole body. Assumedly, this is bad because your whole body is going to feel pain in this place. I would think that this also assumes some measure of awareness and consciousness of this pain. The pain of drastic amputation is related to the whole body in hell. Of course, it would seem that pain is in view. And I'd like to add that neither of these texts even hint at any sort of extinction or annihilation, or ceasing of existence, or non-being. There's just nothing there. The great deterrent is whole body in hell. That's the point. That's the deterrent. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now this is actually also spoken to the disciples to keep them from becoming cowards. This is their motivation. Um, this is good for us. <laughs> it's good for you when you're going you know, out into this world and having to own the fact that you, that you belong to Jesus. And you're tempted to recoil. Even when your own physical life is in danger. Jesus says, don't fear those who can cut your head off. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. What do we make of this text? Here it's clear, I just want to point out, that the soul survives physical death. These men are unable to kill the soul. The scriptures hold out a dualistic perspective of human beings. What I mean by that is that human beings are body and soul entities. Um, I'm not sure what guys like Fudge would say because he does not believe, some, from, from what I've read and from what I've heard of him, that he believes in the ongoing existence of a soul after physical death. Um, here it seems clear. And I'm not sure why Fudge also accuses um, people like Tertullian and the rest of the church who believes in eternal conscious torment to say that it's a Greek idea adopted by Plato that we believe in body and soul, that soul will survive physical death. Jesus seems to imply that pretty clear here. It's not Greek philosophical thought, it's Jesus. Um, the soul or spirit in many places in the New Testament is seen to be a separate entity from the body, yet intended to be one with it. Kind of like water, you know, H2O. You can separate hydrogen and oxygen, but they're meant to be together, right, in some level. So that's sort of, I think, what the scriptures hold out. It's not Greek philosophical thought. Um, it's from Jesus. 
Here it's clear that cowards end up in that place that we've already highlighted. Hell, body and soul, and God destroys them there. Here, man's ability to kill and God's ability to kill slash destroy is compared. Man can kill our physical bodies, but only God can kill slash destroy our bodies and soul. Here is the most common text conditionalists use to defend their position. They say, see, God destroys the soul and body, just like man kills the body. Well, then let's ask the question, how does man kill the body? When you look up the definition of kill, it means to put to death. I mean, it's pretty basic. What does this mean? It means the body is put to death. No more breath, no more life, no more function. It does not function or breathe or move. It is inert. What about the soul? How should we understand to kill or destroy the soul? Well, I'd argue that the term does not have to mean cessation of existence or non-being or non-conscious. Just like a killed body does not eradicate the body, but renders it non-functional and inanimate. The destruction of a soul does not eradicate the soul entirely, but renders it non-functional, ruined, loss of all well-being, unable to do that for which it was intended. Um, and I think the idea of destruction here actually speaks to this. I think that the idea of destruction does not mean total eradication or cessation of existence, contrary to fudge. Now, if you just look up the word destruction, and I just did Strong's, there's probably others. Um, the word destruction here is the word apolyme. Um, it signifies to destroy utterly, to perish. Strong says this, the idea is not extinction, but ruin, loss, ruin and loss, not of being, but of well-being. This is clear from its use as the marring of the wineskins in Luke 5.37. The wineskins are destroyed when you put new wineskins in them. Of lost sheep, the sheep that are lost away from their shepherd. Metaphorical of spiritual destitution. Um, when it talks about the lost son and the parable of the prodigal son, that word lost is the same term of destroy. Um, Luke 15.24, the perishing of food. Um, I'm sorry, John 6, the perishing of food. So of persons, um, when Herod was going to destroy the children um, in Matthew chapter 2, of the disciples, they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Um, all of that language there. It's the loss of well-being, the loss of, of and, and being an utter ruination, of being lost to see, um, whatever it is. It's also interesting that when you look at the text where destroy is used with demons, there are a couple texts in Mark 1 and Luke 4 where the demons implore Jesus to not destroy them. Remember they say, we know who you are, Holy One of God. Did you come to destroy us or do not destroy us, they plead. And then interestingly, there are a few more texts after these where the demons plead with Jesus not to torment them. And moreover, in Luke 8 in specific, the demon pleads with Jesus, quote, do not torment me, and then goes on to say, that Luke narrates here, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Interesting. Torment and the abyss here 
is what is mentioned. This is what they fear. So one could easily see how torment in the abyss is the sense of the destruction in view as it pertains to those in hell. So I think to stretch to destroy into extinction, cease to exist, something like that, I think is not warranted based on the broader teaching of hell. Um, I think we'll see that even more. Um, the scriptures we'll look at next reveal that in hell there is conscious suffering in eternal fire. Um, you can also cross-reference Luke 12 with Matthew 10 uh, where the parallel passage is recorded. Um, I'll just read it. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Listen to this. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's a very interesting text. After he kills, you are then thrown into hell. Um, but again, hell is a place. It's a place where you're destroyed. It's a place that God has authority to cast you into. It's a place of torment. And it's 1046. I'm going to stop. I'm trying to be disciplined. No, I think destroy is a good word. Um, yeah. Our understanding of what destruction. I mean, if you destroy a building, yeah, it doesn't stand up anymore. It's rubble. So it still exists in its you know, basis form, but it does it ceases to be. It ceases to be what it wants. I shouldn't say ceases to be, but it ceases to function into what it meant to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reality is Apollumi has a, has a wide range of meaning. So, does anybody have any questions? We've got like four minutes. And I'm, I'll I think love to. Got he's actually really, he's really funny to listen to. Um, I can't lie. Well, anyway, I shouldn't say it on tape. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything pejorative about him. He's just this. Well, I know you did. But um, he's. A, I'll just put it this way. He's very southern. He's got a bald head, and his name is Edward Fudge. And that sounds like an old cartoon figure. Um, I just couldn't help it when I saw him. But um, anyway, but any, any questions? We've got three minutes. Okay. We'll pick up with Matthew 18 next week. And... Um, Let's pray the Lord bless our time in worship. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, these things are gripping. They are terrifying. Lord Jesus, we thank you for just what you've done to redeem us from this destiny. Um, Lord, you kept your scars to illustrate this reality of what you went through to save sinners from sin. And Lord, help us to never forget it. And Lord, help us to sing to you in light of it. Be with our brother Steve as he brings your word. Be with Dave as he leads us to the throne. And that we would give you the glory and praises that are due your name. In Jesus' name, amen.